Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the show. Today's conversation is a little bit different, but I think really gonna serve those of you who are entrepreneurs, you have a small business, you have a side hustle, or you dream of starting your own thing. I recently did an interview with my friend Ellen Yin on her podcast, Cubicle to CEO. Ellen's show is all about case studies of real entrepreneurs who have used different ideas and concepts to increase their revenue, grow their business, get new clients, or start their own thing. And in this episode, I talked to her about my intention to always add as much value to my audience as I possibly can and how that has translated into more book sales, more tickets to my events sold. It's a really specific and intentional conversation about how to add more value to increase your revenue. So I thought those of you who were in the business space or dreaming about the business space would really benefit from this chat. And so I asked Ellen if it was okay if I repurposed here on the show. Also, it gives you a taste of her interview style and her show so you can go follow along with her journey as well. So this is my conversation with Ellen Yin. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome to Cubicle to CEO, the podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Yin. I quit my job without a backup plan and bootstrapped my first $300 freelance project into $2 million in revenue by age 28. On this show, you'll hear weekly case study interviews with leading entrepreneurs and CEOs who share one specific strategy that successfully grew their business revenue. Skip the expensive and time-consuming learning curve of testing everything yourself by borrowing what actually works from the best and brightest mentors. You'll also get a front row seat to my founder's journey through transparent income reports and behind the business solo episodes. Subscribe now so we can grow together every Monday. You're listening to the Cubicle to CEO podcast, episode 156. You likely already know today's guest, but here's the 10 second intro just in case. Rachel Hollis is a three time New York Times best selling author with over 100 million podcast downloads. This Austin Mama Four is also the founder of Rise Conferences, the number one personal development conference focused entirely on women. When Rachel texted me to ask if I wanted to do an episode together, it was an easy yes, of course, but I wanted to be really intentional about using this opportunity to deep dive into a specific actionable business strategy that she hasn't shared before. That's how we landed on this week's case study, the untold story of how Rachel made the New York Times bestsellers list the first time as a previously self-published and still mostly unknown author then. Whether you're an aspiring author or not, each of you listening has an important message, mission, or offer to get out into the world, and Rachel's experience over the last decade plus can help you reach more people with it. If you enjoy our conversation today and want more authentic, untold stories, join Rachel on tour this fall at rachetalklivetour.com. We'll drop the link for you below in the show notes. Let's dive in. Hey, Rachel, it's so good to have you on the show. I know this isn't our first interview together, but it's fun to do it in this format. So hi, good to see you again. You too. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. So I know you've been on hundreds of interviews over the last few years, and you've had many opportunities to share your life story, including in your own books that you've written. So this interview, if you're listening on Rachel's show, is going to be a little bit of a departure from maybe what you're used to hearing when she's on a show. We're actually going to start this interview with a case study and particularly looking at how you were able to get your first New York Times bestseller with Girl, Wash Your Face. So taking it back to earlier in the journey when you you know didn't have your notoriety or your platform as a bestselling author yet, because I think there's a lot of people perhaps in the audience who have works, whether it's books or podcasts or stage talks that they want to get out in front of more people. And so I think that case study is going to be really helpful. And then after we're going to dive in and talk about what's next for you, what you're working on in this season, your live tour that's coming up. So let's just get going with the good stuff. Let's talk about this case study. (laughs) All right. So first things first, I feel like people who may not be as familiar with your work might not know that even though you, you know, quote unquote, rose to fame with Girl, Wash Your Face as an author, you were actually already a seasoned published author before that book ever came out. In fact, I think you had already published three books prior to that. Is that correct? Five. Five. Oh, five. Okay. Oh my goodness. All right. So this is what's amazing is that nobody knows. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. The the first five books that you had, I did a little research and I saw that they were published under chic publishing. Is that your own publishing house? Was that (laughs) self-published? I love how um, sweet you are to say publishing house as if we knew what we were doing or had any other author. Uh, Yeah. So I had wanted to be an author since I was a little girl. I had, I'm a huge book nerd still to this day. I read constantly. And um, I remember being a little girl, the first time it occurred to me that someone wrote the books I read Mm -hmm. and just thinking like, Oh, this, I want to do this. And I had dreamed of that forever. And I love fiction. And I actually really thought that my life as an author would be entirely in the fiction space. So I wrote my first fiction book. And I like, I think a lot of people have this story that we tell ourselves where we think, if I can just get the project done, then everyone's going to want a part of it. Like, because it's so hard to get to a finished project, whatever that is, that if you keep stopping and starting, like I did, like a lot of authors will half write 30 books, but never finish a single one. And I was definitely guilty of that. So I just thought, man, if I could get to the end, certainly I'll have a published book. And I got to the end and literally no publisher in North America wanted any part of it. They were like, nobody will read this. It's not what's popular. Ironically, it was right around the time that Fifty Shades of Grey was just exploding. And anytime you have a sort of black swan event, like something crazy happens, an entire industry will shift. And that's what happened with women's fiction. Now, suddenly everybody wanted books that were like that. And like, no shade to Fifty Shades of Grey, because I am all here for whatever people want to read. But I just wasn't that kind of author. And I didn't have that kind of book in me. I didn't even have that kind of sexiness in me. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm I'm not going to have a published book. And I always tell the story that the very last publisher called to say, no, thank you. And I remember closing myself in my bathroom and sliding down to the floor and just ugly crying. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a cry like that, Ellen, where you're like, my dreams are dead. Like, I'm never going to be who I thought I was going to be. And it was so dramatic. And I had a good cry. 
And then I had this voice, which I now would think of as my inner wisdom sort of speaking to me. I think our inner wisdom is constantly speaking. It's whether or not we can hear that just sort of whispered, like, you already did the hard part. You did the hardest part. You finished. And now you're going to give up because other people don't get it. So I got up off the floor, went to the kitchen and Googled, how do you self-publish a book? And now there's so many modalities for that that make it a lot easier. But at the time, it was really clunky and hard. And so I worked with my team. I, I had a little business and I worked with the team and we figured out how to self-publish it. We needed a name. So we named it after, you know, the site that I had was called the Chic site. So it became Chic Publishing. And that's how my first book came into being. And that book completely grew through word of mouth. I mean, that's what we're going to talk a lot about today because that is my story is I just really believe that if you keep creating good content and you keep taking care of your audience, you will find success. So that book came out and um, one person told another person told another person. And the irony was that the reason that no publisher wanted it was because it was too sweet. There wasn't any sex in it. And that was the reason it became so successful because it was so opposite what was in the market. So that mm. book started to sell more and more and more. And I had self-published on Amazon, not knowing that Amazon has its own publishing houses. And so they could see my numbers. So they just kept seeing this little engine that could. And one day I got an email that said, hey, we see your numbers. We want to buy this book and relaunch it. And we think it's a series. We want you to write two more. And I... I had never thought of that book as a series, but I was like, I'll, yes, I'll do anything. And I always tell that story because it's such a good example of like how often an expert or a voice of authority can speak into our dreams and take the wind out of our sails. You know, we don't know what we're doing. And someone who is seemingly like at the top of the game is like, you're not good enough. You suck. You're not the right age, size, weight. Um, you don't come from the right background. You don't know enough. And we're like, oh, okay. And that is such an example of not taking no for an answer and just finding a way. Because my goal with that wasn't to be a New York Times bestseller. My goal was to hold a published book in my hands. That's all I wanted. I wanted to hold a book with my name on it in my hands. And that there's a lot of ways to get to the same end result. So um, I love that story because I just think if I hadn't self-published that first book, I wouldn't have got to the sixth book that sold millions and millions and millions of copies and changed my life forever. 100%. I, I'm just sitting here smiling as you're sharing this story because I can so relate to young Rachel. I remember in elementary school, I was obsessed with like when the, do you remember the scholastic book fairs that would come to Absolutely. your school? Yes. That was like the best little, day. little like tiny newspaper that showed yes. what was available. Absolutely. <laughs> A hundred percent. I was always so excited. And I remember I would enter writing competitions as a, you know, in elementary school, middle school. And I remember searching Scholastic's website, like where to submit uh, for, you know, for an author. Like if you want to be an author, where do you submit your book? And just things that are so funny looking back. Cause I'm like, that's not how you become an author, but you know, you don't know right. as, as a maybe, kid. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. And, and I think that the, the big takeaway from, well, two things that I got from what you just shared. One, the experts are not always right. Experts can make mistakes too. Right. And I think there's countless 
real life stories and fictional stories out there of people who have been told no, or you're not ready, you're not good enough by an expert. And they took that as truth as just there's it's black and white truth. Like, okay, you, you must know better than me because you're more experienced in this, or you have more success than me. But I love the other part of, you know, what you shared, which is that if, if someone's not willing to lend you their platform or give you a stage, like you can go out and build your own stage. And I love that you took that path of saying, okay, so no publisher wants to work with me. Fine. What, how can I still get this book out into people's hands? And then of course, like you said, if you hadn't done that step, then that sixth book may never have come to life. And Amazon may have never noticed that you were selling copies. And so I think there's so much truth behind, um, what you shared there. And also the fact that even beyond, oh, you know, you already had five books before you published that sixth one. I think people also still may think, oh, well, you know, you already built up this big audience because like, I know when you and I were having a a phone call earlier last week, you mentioned a big break for you that happened in terms of visibility was in 2015 when one of your pictures went viral, right? You showed Mm -hmm. your stretch marks on a beach and that went viral and you got a ton of attention from that. And people may look at that one breakthrough moment and go, oh, but that's it. Like that was the secret to success. But yet they don't see however many years you spent, like you said, nurturing and and writing for your audience when no one really cared. So tell us a little bit about that too, like that pre-story, because I think that context is so key. How many years were you writing for the Chic site a, before your first oh, self-published yeah. book even went out? And then how many years had it been when Girl, Wash Your Face came out? Yeah, so I started my blog, meaning that I wrote regularly for people on the internet in 2008. Um, at the time, I didn't know what I was doing, so I still wasn't publishing consistently. Um, it would take a few years to get to the point where I was writing every single day. But mm-hmm. I do think that that's a big piece that people miss is that my crazy success as a writer happened in 2018, a full decade after I began writing for this audience. So I think that the picture going viral, again, I couldn't see any of this at the time, but I look back and I'm like, when we step into our truth, when we begin to live our truth and walk towards our purpose, like when we're like, oh, I feel this calling on my heart. And I sort of think that maybe I could be a photographer. I could run a nonprofit. I could build this business or be CEO. When we begin to take steps, even if we're unsure, the universe rises up to meet us. And I feel like that viral picture was the universe just giving me a little nod, like, okay, this is a thing. Because if I look at these sort of bloops, I don't, I don't know if everyone can see me. I understand the podcast is audio, but like, if I look at, like, if you think of a heart monitor and you imagine when it kind of spikes up, when I mm-hmm. look at, I'm just realizing Ellen too, cause this is on video and I'm just going to be real that, um, I keep getting stabbed by my bra and I just realize it's cause, um, there's stickers everywhere in Texas and I've been taking my dog out on hikes in the morning. So please ignore me digging in my bra. Let's try that again. It was hurting so bad that I was like, I can't keep telling this story. So if you think of a heart monitor with these sort of like, oops, um, those spikes or those moments where I would really see a lot of traction always came when I was speaking to my audience in a in my voice, in a way that was not like anything else I was seeing and was just me. It's like me stopping a conversation with you to tell you that I've got a sticker in my bra. It's like me opening for Oprah and telling a story about a tampon getting lost inside my body and her literally coming up on stage, 15,000 people and being like, 
girl, what was that story? Like, why are you telling a story about a tampon? And also like, how have you had this success and you're here doing this thing? And I was like, oh, because I'm willing to stand on your stage and tell the tampon story. Like I'm just showing up as myself, doing my best to serve an audience. And whenever those things align, that's when I see these moments of success. So I really did like sort of the things I would say is put in a ton of time. The the blogs that I was writing in 2008 were nothing compared to what I could write in 2010 or 2012 or 14. Um, 2014 was when I published the first book. So that was six years later. Um, and then it would still take four more years to get to the book that would change my life forever. So um, it really is the willingness to put in the time, which I don't think a lot of people love to hear because we're in a culture of such instantaneous, we want success, right? We want to post a photo and have it immediately get, you know, thousands of likes, or we want to put something out and immediately see it come to fruition. But what I found is that everything takes time. Every single new venture that I go into, it takes a while to set it up. So you have got to be in love with the process. You've got to love what it is that you're doing. And I know people hear that a lot and sort of we roll our eyes, but it's true. Honestly, there's a lot of ways to pay your bills. And if you're doing work or you're chasing after something that you hate, like there's so many other ways that you could be pursuing this. So if you're going to pursue something, by God, let it be something that you feel passionate about. And I know we don't always have those opportunities. I worked a sandwich counter for a very long time making sub sandwiches. That wasn't like what I was hoping for in my life, but that was how I paid the bills. But, you know, you do what you have to do until you can do what you want to do. And I think that um, while I had that blog, 2008, 2009, 2010, I was, you know, doing recipes and, and doing product integration with like random CPG companies. And just, it wasn't what I was passionate about, but I was like, wow, I found a way to write and pay my bills and I get to work towards a bigger dream. So, um, yeah, that was huge for me. But I think if you looked at that viral post where I was talking about stretch marks and you read girl, wash your face or anything I've done since then, you'd be like, oh yeah, same chick. And I, I think it's Stephen King who says that every author is writing the same story over and over and over again. And as a writer, it's powerful to figure out what your, what's the story you're writing and the story mm. that I'm writing in fiction, in the two cookbooks that I have in the nonfiction, in the podcast, in the movie script that I wrote, the, the story is always, you can do it. You can do it. Whatever it is that you are aiming for, you are trying for, you are capable, you can do this thing. So, um, yeah, I just I think it's a learning process along the way. And hopefully you see those little spikes of insight and just um, very spiritual. I'm very much a hippie, Ellen. So I will also say to your audience, whatever you believe in God, the universe, spirit guides, angels, I really believe that you can ask for guidance and that you can ask for signs like Hey guys, I'm having a really hard day and it feels like nothing's working. Please just like, can you give me even the smallest sign that I'm on the right track? Can you, and I swear, whenever I get to that place where I'm just like, God, please, you know, help a sister out. Like I need something universe, please. I always get a phone call. I'll get a text. I'll get some project that I'm like, you know, hoping is going to happen. I'll get some little nudge and insight. So I think, um, if you're walking in the right direction, you're sort of leading with your heart, serving that audience well, 
I don't know how to make it go faster for you, but I do know that it's possible to achieve success if you keep working at it in that way. Yeah, that's powerful. And it's it's a story that needs to be shared more, that overnight success, however it may look, there are so many things that led up to a single moment in time, right? And, and to be able to zoom out and look at the full context is something that is very rarely shared in the sound bites and in the instantaneous gratification and the flashy headlines that we see and read. And so that's why I love getting to do these long form interviews with people like yourself who have had success because there's always context around a single moment or a single success. And I really love too that your reminder that the process is it needs to be gratifying because even when you hit that moment of success, I think especially for a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, they're probably similar to you and I, Rachel, in the sense that they may, you know, be like type three Enneagrams or people who are very outcomes oriented, right? And so right. even even in the moment of hitting a big goal, I don't know, you know, if you can relate, but oftentimes I feel like even when we hit the goal that we set, it it feels very fleeting. It's like, oh, exciting. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, and what's next? Right. And, and that is, I think a plague <laughs> that we have brought upon ourselves with like hustle yeah. culture and all of these things where we don't take the time to celebrate ourselves and to enjoy all of the moments that lead up to a certain point and enjoy the moment itself. So I think that was, you know, such a key reminder. And now that they have a little bit more context around, okay, what were all the things happening in the decade leading up to this book, your first nonfiction book, having the success that it did, can you, looking back, tell us what do you feel um, outside of just pure time, right, that built this momentum for you? What was different about the launch of Girl Wash Your Face versus your fiction books? What was it that allowed you to pre-sell 275,000 copies, which is amazing, right, in and of itself, but also hit the New York Times bestsellers list, not when the book launched, which you told me on our call, it was actually like three months, I think, after yeah. the book had come out that that um, further extension happened. But what, what did you recognize as the key differences between those launches? Yeah. So a couple of things, I got so many ideas based on what you just said. So forgive me as I get on a soapbox real quick. So the first thing I wanted to say before I forget is um, for you, for anybody listening to this, that is a high achiever, a book that I read in the last six months that really like profoundly helped me is called the gap versus the game. Have you read this? Ooh. No, who is okay. it by? Write it down. Everyone listening, please write down this book. It's called The Gap Versus the Gain. It's by Ben Hardy and oh, another author. I can't think of it. And I am remembering it. I'm super pumped. I get to interview him tomorrow. So I have his new book, which is also fantastic. Be your future self now. I'm just, I love hyping other authors. So, but seriously, you guys, The Gap Versus the Gain, it's this whole concept about why high achievers never feel happy, never feel satisfied. We get to that goal. We immediately want another one. It creates burnout. It creates just gross 
like hustle in us. And I think that anyone who's an achiever gets it. Um, so it teaches you this way to measure backwards instead of forwards. It's hmm. so good. Uh, please, you're going to read it, Ellen, and you're going to text me and be like, girl, yes. So first of all, everyone <laughs> grab that book. <laughs> Secondly, um, so just to, uh, just to correct a little bit of that story. So hmm. the book that I saw, 275,000 in pre-orders, was Girl Stop Apologizing. That was the follow-up. It. But I'll tell right. you how we got there. So um, just to give a little context for reading who might not be authors or maybe they're authors and you know want to become something bigger in that field the way that you are most likely to get on the New York Times list as an unknown author is if you have a bunch of pre-order books so if you've ever seen authors talking a lot about pre-orders there's a reason why it's because um, New York Times list is this like magical nebulous nobody really knows exactly how you can get on but it does have to do a lot with sales and if you pre-order a book whether that's six months before or two days before all of those sales show up on day one so it looks like on day one, six months of six months of sales are happening all at once, which is great to make the list. So I knew this in advance. Um, I was with a bigger publisher than I'd ever been before on Girl Stop Apologizing. And I knew this in advance. And so we had worked on a whole pre-order campaign and they really helped me because I just, I didn't know anything about it. And I think that we were giving away like phone wallpapers and just anything digitally that we could email people. So essentially we would say, okay, if you pre-order this book before the day before it comes out, we'll send you these freebies. And it was sort of this, it's an incentive, right? So like if my audience, my fans, my community are going to buy the book, no matter what, may as well get it in advance and get some, some stuff. So with girls, wash your face (laughs) with girl, wash your face. We had a very small pre-order because I, number one, I'd never written a book like that before. Um, I had never done a pre-order campaign before and no one really knew who I was. So imagine that I wrote three, uh, three and a half, cause I did a short, um, a novella, but so three and a half fiction books about girls living in LA, two cookbooks that have nothing to do. And then all of a sudden I'm like, and let's talk about personal development ladies. So, you know, my sweet community who'd been with me for a long time, definitely bought books, but on that first day, I knew based on the sales, because your publisher can see like, I want to say that we maybe did um, in the first week, we maybe did 12,000 books, which yes, I was crapping my pants. That was the most I had ever sold. I was like, holy crap. But I also had this dream, this lifelong dream of being a New York Times bestseller. And I had never made it before. I had never been on any list before. And I knew this was my best chance. And so when I heard those numbers, I was like, there's no way. Because you have to imagine some of these bigger authors are doing millions, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that first week, I was so excited, but I was so disappointed. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard me tell the story, Ellen, but I had a bottle of Dom Perignon. I have that's seen that video. Yeah. yeah. Someone had given us when, when I got married here, I'm not married anymore, but when I got married years ago, someone had given us a really nice bottle of champagne and it was so nice that I was like, I can't just drink this. I got to do something with it. So I decided to use it as like a wish. Right. So I put a piece of tape on this really nice bottle of champagne and I wrote New York times bestseller. 
and I put it in the cupboard and then I would move it to the refrigerator. And every time we moved houses, I'd take that champagne bottle with me. And every time I'd see it, I remember what I was working towards. And I thought, man, this is the time I'm going to open that bottle of champagne. So the first week happens and I do not, I don't get it. And I hate to say it because it feels like such a blessing to be upset about, but I was really disappointed and I was upset with myself and um, I had a good cry and then I just got over it and I was like, all right, not this one on to the next, like we Enneagram threes like to do. And I just kept working on it, kept talking about it, kept doing book signings and what little press I could get. And I just, you know, I'm the little engine that could. And it just like my first fiction book, it started to sell a little better and a little better, and a little better, and it grew, and it grew, and I have this really unique distinction of having a book hit the New York Times list three months after it came out. I mean, that's just not a thing. It's not a thing, Um, and so I remember being at the office. I was there alone for some reason, being at the office, and my publisher called, and you know, answered the phone. He's like, hey, we're all here. I could cry just thinking about it. Hey, we're all here, and um, it's like, you're on the list. And I, it was, I was so flabbergasted, Ellen, because I just, I didn't even think it was still possible for me. And I just started weeping. Like I fell on the floor. I was so happy. I was so proud. And it was the best tasting bottle of champagne I've ever had. Oh my word. It was so good. It was so exciting to drink it. Um, but yeah, that, that was this buildup. And I had, this is a, an interesting theory. And I almost hesitate to say it, but it is a big part of, I think, what would come later in this massive arc of continued success as an author is the Enneagram 3 worked to my advantage because I had started writing the next book before Girl, Wash Your Face came out. So I started writing Girl, Stop Apologizing before Wash Your Face came out. And that was actually incredibly powerful. Because I think if I had waited and I had experienced the success of Girl, Wash Your Face, I would never have, I don't know if I would have written another book. Because how on earth do you follow that up? Um, Imagine that you're going from selling like the previous book sold like 8,000 copies to suddenly you have a book that's 100,000, 200,000, three, and it just keeps growing. So having Girl Stop Apologizing come out almost a year later, like it was immediate, really created incredible momentum. Now I had learned how to do a a pre-launch, a a pre-order campaign. And now I had the second book coming out. So I was like, let's go. And I'll be totally honest. I am still with HarperCollins. They've been a longtime partner. And the biggest name at HarperCollins sort of in my category was Joanna Gaines. And I was like, what is the most books that Joanna Gaines has ever done in pre-order? We're in totally different categories, but I love having something to aim at. And they told me the number and I was like, okay, I'm gonna beat Jojo. Like I, I love her. She's so wonderful. But I was like, this is, she doesn't know this story, but I was like, I just need, I'm going to aim at that. Like that's going to be my North star. So I started this campaign and I was like, okay, what we gave people last time, phone, you know, wallpaper and, uh, you know, those kind of things. It's nice, but that's not what's going to really elevate. And what I know to be true, I'm just going to keep coming back to this over and over and over is if you take care of your community, like with intention, with heart, not because you're hoping to get something back, but if you take care of your community, they take care of you. So I was like, okay, in business, 
there's this concept of like, how do you take away any fear of not getting an ROI? So if someone wants a return on the investment, how do I create a deal that is so fantastic for someone that they would be crazy to not do it, you know, that they have to take advantage. And I thought, well, if I could give people something, if I could offer so much value that it is way above and beyond the price of a single book, well, then you'd have to pre-order because you'd be like, holy crap, you know, she's giving away Birkin bags. If you pre-order her, you're like, we got to get in on that. So I just thought, okay, what can I offer that's really, really, really good that you can't say no, that I remove any fear of investment for you. And the second option was like, how could I create something that I could do at scale, right? Mm -hmm. So if I said, hey, Ellen, if you pre-order, I'm going to come to your house and hang out with you for an hour and braid your hair. That's probably worth something to someone, but not scalable. I can't do that on, on a large quantity by myself. So I came up with this idea to teach a class. I know that one of the strongest things I can do is teach on stage. I, I produce really big conferences for women. Like you said, I'm doing a tour this fall. Um, it's one of my spiritual giftings and I've worked really hard to get good at that. So I was like, okay, I could teach a class. I could do it on video, which means I would need to record it one time. It would take me a couple hours, but then I would have this thing for her. And typically in, in the personal development industry for people who do things like that, that course could be anywhere from $150 to $3,000, depending on what you're teaching. So I was like, I'm going to make a course that's, I think, worth $150. I'm going to teach for an hour, hour and a half, two hours. I'm going to give her all my ideas. And it's going to be on a topic that's connected to this book so that she'll pre-order the book just to get the class. She might not even be a reader. She might not want any part of this book, but she'll do it because she wants this video course. So it's like just a win for everybody. You're getting this great um, value for the investment of a book, which might be, I think at the time was like $19.99. Um, and we just, just exploded. It was just I don't know if anyone had done something like that before, at least maybe not in my community or not with a female author. And um, it just, it was huge. So um, that was the pre-order campaign that did 275,000, which is bananas. And um, it's, um, it's here on my wall, which I'll show you. Uh, it's, so my New York Times uh, plaques are on my wall, That's but the Girl Stop Apologizing debuted at number one on New York Times. And the thing that I have framed here is that Girl Stop Apologizing is number one and Girl Wash Your Face is number two, which is pretty freaking epic. And for, um, I feel like this is important to say too, Ellen, those have been in my closet for four years because it embarrassed me. Um, I don't tend to put any recognition around myself. I don't tend to acknowledge that I've achieved anything. I don't want people to ever walk into my, you know, TV room and be like, oh, she's so full of herself. You know, she, I don't know. I have some weird, I don't know if you do too, but I have some weird stuff about achievement. I can't stop chasing it, but I also won't acknowledge it. <laughs> and about seven months ago, I, I realized how harsh that is. Like, you know, my kids will draw a picture of a smiley face and I literally, my whole house is covered with my kids' artwork. And the term artwork is like being generous in some cases, but it's everywhere. I celebrate them and they do anything and I really acknowledge it, but I don't do that for myself. So um, a while back, I dug these out of a closet and, and put them up on the wall so that I would remember like, damn, you worked really hard for that, sister. Acknowledge it. Um, 
yeah. So anyway, uh, that was a story of how adding a ton of value, serving the audience well, making it so she had no, no, like, why would she ever say no, um, is what sort of helped her to do that. And I, I know that it's easy to hear the story and think, well, yeah, that makes sense for an author, but I swear for your listeners, it does not matter what they do, what their side hustle is, what their business, there is a way to do this. So, um, is it, you're a baker in your town and your added value is that anybody who is a regular customer from you, you're going to make a video once a month where you show them like how to make your famous buttercream, or you're going to do something entertaining, or you're going to, I think of um, one of my favorite bakeries in LA is called Susie Cakes. And um, it's such a simple thing, but when you buy a birthday cake there, they'll tape really cute candles to the box of the cake. It's just like those simple things. Like as a mom, I can't tell you how often I've forgotten the birthday candles. So it's just like, how do you associate yourself as someone who's thinking of your community and your customer base or your clients in a bigger way? How do you become, like I think of real estate agents that I use again and again and again, um, which sounds weird because you're like, well, how many houses are you buying? I'm not buying a lot of houses. But if you've bought more than one house and you have a real estate agent that you trust, they're the person that you go back to. And you, they're also who you send your friends to. And they're also who you call and go, hey, sister, who's the best hairstylist on that side of town? Where's the coffee shop that we have to go to? Because the real estate agents know the city. So when your clients associate you with caring about them on a lot of levels, not just in a transactional way, when they're like, oh, this person is here to serve me, we return the favor. All right, we're back for lightning round with Rachel Hollis. Rachel, I'm going to shoot three questions your way. Whatever comes to mind, answer it 30 seconds or less. Ready? I'm ready. Okay, speed round. What is your most used emoji? Uh, Laughing, crying. The one slanted or the one like... No, straight on. (laughs) Great, great question. Just straight on, laughing, crying. That, you know, it's sad because, I mean, I'm I'm a young millennial, right? Like... I'm a zillennial technically, like kind of right in that middle of Gen Z millennial. But it made me so sad when people were like, oh, people who use the straight on crying emoji, like that's like you're an old person. Cause like, I was like, no, (laughs) I was like, don't take that away from me. (laughs) It's hilarious. I definitely use that. So I am an old person, apparently. (laughs) Never, never, never. Okay. Second question What is the scariest thing you have ever done and why did you do it? This might be hard to answer um, in 30 seconds, I realize, but maybe high level. Well, okay. High level. This year I committed to doing things that scare me because I was tired of being such a weenie. So I've gone skydiving. I just went shark diving last month. Um, I learned to ski. I've done all sorts of things uh, that have petrified me to prove to myself that I can do it and still live. And it's been one of the most life-changing years of my life. Oh, that's amazing. Maybe next book, a memoir of your year of scary things. Right. Yes, exactly. All right. Awesome. And then final question for you. This one's kind of interesting. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Just to live in someone else's shoes for a day. Okay. Just going to go with who popped into my brain, The Rock. Um, My audience knows I'm a massive fan of The Rock. I just want to know 
what's a day? Like, cause you know that that starts at 3 a.m. and goes to like midnight. And I just feel like he is work. I just want to know how his brain works. I want to know what he's doing. How hard is he pushing? Like I have so many questions about his world. That would definitely be my choice. That's a really good answer. It's not what I was expecting you to say, but now that you said it, I'm like, I should have expected that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's, pretty, it's pretty right on. Yes. Nailed it. Perfect. I think that this lesson is so huge. And I just want to, I mean, you shared so many great tips, you know, in, in, in sharing that process of what it looked like behind the scenes for that particular launch. I just want to pull out this piece of, if I had to sum up what you said in two words, it would be enhance experiences, right? Enhance their experience yes. of whatever it is that you're selling, your product, your service, an event. And I think there's really two opportunities from what you shared to enhance someone's experience. And that would be either finding a point of friction. So like you just mentioned, like one of your favorite bakers, like, yeah, it's so easy to forget the birthday candles. Cause it's just like, Oh, it's just one other thing that you just, you might not remember to do, but you know, everybody likes to blow out a candle on their birthday cake. And so yeah. just adding that solving that micro problem for them is is so easy and probably very cost effective to include that extra addition but it makes people remember you and go okay next I'm going to buy from that bakery again because they made that whole experience just so easy for me and then I think the other point is if if you're not finding clear points of friction within whatever you're delivering to your customer looking at okay how do I enhance whatever it is that they're already getting. And I feel like your book launch was a great example of that. Like, okay, they're already getting great content inside this book, but how do I enhance their learning through a more in-depth video that covers some of the aspects maybe that the book couldn't cover? Or like you mentioned, for some people who may not be natural born readers, and that might be a new habit, so to speak, for them to open up a book and sit down and read it, you were looking at it through the lens of, okay, they may not be readers, but what's a habit stack, right? It's kind of like, you know, a James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. It's Atomic Habits, yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of like that same idea. Like, okay, if someone's already used to consuming media through video form, because we all watch like Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is, if you can give them a familiar content form and go, okay, I have like an hour and a half video for you, watch this. And if you like what you hear and see, you might also enjoy reading this book, right? So I think those are such great ways of approaching it. And I even remember when we were on our pre-call for this, I wrote this down as a note because I was like, oh, that's so smart. Um, you were talking about your lash artist in Austin and how, you know, her main clientele are moms and how, you know, yep. again, point of friction for moms is that their schedules oftentimes are very much dictated by other people's things too, right? Like their kids and, and what, <laughs> like whatever their kids are doing, their after school activities, work, all these things. And so, um, I, I loved how you mentioned that your lash artist kind of has like, uh, I don't know, she makes appointment schedules at weird hours, like hours that are outside of yeah. traditional business hours. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So it's this idea. I love that you said looking for points of friction, because I think back to myself as an early, I mean, I've been an entrepreneur for 18 plus years. Yeah. So I think back to earlier me or, you know, women that I've coached over the years, or even members of my family who've started businesses, and they'll get really excited about this idea. They'll start to come up with all these ways that they can serve their audience and they'll get themselves into trouble by spending too much time, energy, money, resources, because they think of these ideas that nobody asked for and that nobody needs. 
they're not looking at what will help their clients. So like, what would I like in this situation? Right. And so with, I, when I think of my lash artist, cause she's fantastic, her hours, she'll come in super early. It'll be dead kind of in during school drop off. It'll swell again while elementary school hours are in session. And then the afternoon is sort of done. And she might pull in some evening clients or weekend clients because she's accommodating those, those moms. When I first met her, I remember her saying like, oh, if I didn't work with the moms in this area, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the success of my business that I have. And I think that knowing your client and knowing what they want. So for me, the, the work that I'm trying to do in this world and with my life is um, it's all around this guiding principle that I believe, because this is my own story, that anyone can change their life for the better if they have the right knowledge. So the tools that we find in books so that we learn from teachers or listen on podcasts. So if that's my goal, if that's what I believe I'm here to do, I can't only give that to the audience in the way that makes the most sense to me. I can, but I don't think that the reach will be as wide. So what I started out doing was writing. Words are my thing. And if I only ever wrote books, that would be great, but I wouldn't have the audience that I have. So I'm teaching or giving the information that I'm finding out in the world, and I'm doing it through different modalities to try and serve the audience that needs it in that form. So I'm writing the words for the readers. I'm speaking in podcast for people who want to listen, right? I do in-person events. So I do keynote speeches. I throw conferences. I go on tour because the experiential thing that happens inside a room like that is, is once in a lifetime. And if you've ever been, you know, um, so I need to be able to create those kind of experiences for people who need that environment. Um, video for people who want to watch a video, like I'm just going to keep coming up with different modalities to try and meet as many people as I possibly can. And I think whether you're a hairstylist, you own, you know, a local mechanic, like thinking about what the actual customer or client truly needs is what makes you different. It's how you differentiate yourself. Um, I actually, I love that you said experience because I think that every business, every business is supposed to be an experience business. Um, you know, why do I pay more for coffee at Merit in Austin than going to a Starbucks? I do it because of the experience that I'm going to get walking in to this really hip, cool local coffee place. And also that I feel like a different person because I'm in this experience than I would if I'm at a Starbucks. It's not to say that I don't love my venti ice green tea, but it's just different. And if you are mindful of that and you think like, okay, what's the experience that I want to give my community? It changes everything. I love that. My homework assignment to all of you listening today is to think on what is either one friction point you could resolve for your customers or clients or one thing you could add to the delivery of your service or product that would enhance their experience. And then I want you to share that to your stories and tag me and Rachel, tag cubicle to CEO at cubicle to CEO, tag Rachel's Instagram at Ms. Rachel Hollis. And we'll make sure to put that in the, um, in the caption or the show notes below so that you have those easy links, but let us know, like, what is something that you can do for your business to really add to that experience. And Rachel, I just have one last question on this case study before we talk more about your tour this fall and some questions around that, because I'm really excited to hear what you have envisioned for that whole experience. But my final question on the case study is, okay, so we know 
what went into the pre-order and and we know that pre like creating that experience was really what incentivized people to purchase you know early versus after the book came out but my question to you is what did you find made the biggest difference in actually marketing the pre-order offer, right? Because in order for people to take advantage of that offer, they had to know about the offer. So I, it's kind of like a multiple choice. I, I came up with four options and I'm just curious, which of these four do you feel like made the biggest difference for you as an author? And I feel like whatever your answer is, people could apply to selling their books or selling whatever offers they have. So Option A would be emails, like email marketing. You were sending it to your list and telling people, hey, here's this pre-order, here's the offer. B is social media. So any content you created on Instagram, Facebook, or otherwise. C, media interviews and press coverage, which I know get gets kind of like the most... Um, what is it? Like credibility. Like people love being able to say like, Oh, I was on the today show or I did this or that I was in Times Square. It does does not do anything. It is all ego. Yes. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, just to jump in because that will not be my answer. Um, press is ego hundred percent. I have never seen a jump in sales, more tickets sold, more business success ever, ever, ever because of press. Now I have seen success in local markets. So like for tour, for instance, we're going to cities where I haven't been before, where maybe they don't know who I am. So doing some stuff with local press, local radio, local newspaper, just kind of say like, here's who I am. Here's what I'm about. Here's who the show is for. If you want to come. That does go a long way because that's more educational marketing, but getting on the Today Show, unless it's like you have a product and they choose you for like Christmas shopping, that could be massive. If you're one of Oprah's favorite things, yes, do that. But y'all, I have been on everything and it does feel fancy but it really doesn't move the needle. And I think that most businesses, authors, speakers would tell you the same thing if you asked. You know, sorry I interrupted. I got no, no, no. I'm really glad you jumped in because we can we can <laughs> we can X out <laughs> option C. And you're right, actually. I, I don't even remember who I was talking to recently, but they said the same thing for particularly f- as it relates to book launches. They were like, the press is great for like maybe overall brand awareness, but in terms of driving action, like getting someone to hop on their phone and purchase, that's a lot harder of a sell. So you need good to know. That has a link. You need something that has a link. Like Today yeah. Show doesn't have a link. But if someone is on their phone, we all do this, right? Yeah. If it's right there and you just have to swipe up, mm-hmm. you will take action. But if you to remember it later, it doesn't work in the same way. Totally. That that makes absolute sense. And okay, so we can exit out C, not, not the right answer. But number four was live events that you produced. So I guess out of the three remaining options, emailing your list, social media content, or marketing the book through live events that you produce, the conferences, shows, whatever, which do you feel like was the biggest needle mover as a channel? So, um, social media and email hundred percent, everything that I've done is those have been the biggest drivers. Now I'll take them in a couple different ways. When it comes to social media, it's this like, um, it's a beast because it will eat everything you do. It's never enough which then sort of feels like this endless cycle of producing content. And I think at some point that begins to feel daunting or you start to do work that isn't as good because you're just like, I have to keep talking about it, keep talking about it, keep talking about it. So I would say for anything that you're working on, 
You want to think of it in how can I create content where I'm talking about the same thing, but I'm talking about it in 15 different ways. So I'm not boring my audience. I'm not regurgitating the same stuff. I'm really trying to come up with clever thoughts to sort of serve you again, serving you instead of asking constantly for someone to take action against what you're doing. So um, for instance, if it was a book, that would be, you know, quotes from the book, that would be audio, that would be videos that I made about different parts of it that I think will be helpful. The other thing that I feel like people, in my opinion, get wrong when it comes to launching stuff is they're terrified of giving away too much. They're like, I can't, I can't give away too much. And they'll say this over and over. I'm sure you've experienced this where they keep saying, if you buy the book, when you buy the name of my book, if you get this book, if you get this book, then And I actually have found the opposite is true. If you just tell them everything, here, guys, let me serve you. Let me give you all I got. Let me tell you all the things. If you do that, people are like, man, I like this person. Like, I want to see all the things she has to say. I want to see what he's bringing. If you give it away, I think Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this a lot. Just like, tell people, just tell them what it is. Like, he will literally tell people, this is exactly how to do what I do. The irony is that most people won't. Most people won't actually put that much effort in. They won't actually um, do the things that you're telling them that you're doing. So there's power in just giving as much information as you can away for free. And then people come to you as sort of the expert in that field. So that's what I would do on social. Email is very powerful. Very, very, very powerful. I'm sure you know. Um, I think that when social media started to grow and explode, everyone was like, what's well, email? That's a dinosaur. No, it's still very, very relevant. And actually, one of the most powerful things that we did in pre-ordering those books was I had access to my customers. Because think about it. People are buying books at Barnes & Noble, Target, Amazon. They weren't buying them from me. So I had no idea who my readers were. But by offering them something, same as a podcast, right? Like we don't know who our listeners are, but if we offer them something that gets them to give us their email address, well, now we actually know our customer base. And it does not matter what business you are in, you will always make more money off existing clientele than you will off people who've never heard of you before. So actually going back and serving an existing customer is going to give you way more return, way more revenue, way more profit than if you're trying to go find new people. Um, So having an email list, growing an email list, nurturing that is really powerful. And not just when you want something from them, you know, taking care of them every single week. So like my, I send an email every Sunday my Sunday email has a 73% open rate, which is freaking bananas for the size of the list that it is. And it's because every Sunday I show up in their inbox and I'm like, here's my favorite skincare. Here's this crazy thing my dog did. Here's this store. And I'm just, I'm serving, serving, serving. And then every once in a while, I'm like, Hey guys, I'm going on tour. If you live in Omaha, if you live in Chicago, if you like this, is, and they're like, yeah, girl, because you're my friend. Like you've been here and you've been showing up and it's really powerful. The last thing, <laughs> I'm just going to go through all of them. Events. I don't, I, I'm just straight up honest with you. Um, events are not big revenue generators ever. 
Um, sadly, I think that, you know, people will see a RISE conference and there's 9,000 women in the audience and it looks massive. It looks like a rock concert. We're jumping up and down. Everyone's having a great time. And I look at those pictures. I'm so proud. It's like so beautiful, the care, the intentionality, all of it, but it's not a moneymaker. It's so expensive. It's crazy. But events are very powerful for building a relationship with your community that you cannot get in any other way. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's nothing like it. And without question, if we look at the data, the people, if you're just thinking of a customer base, the people that are most likely to buy the next book, are most likely to come to the tour, are most likely to listen to podcasts, are always the people who come to conference. Because I feel like they have the strongest relationship with you. So um, I really love events or I love in-person speaking because it's just one of my favorite things. I love, I'm an extrovert, so I love the energy of a crowd. But if someone's considering this and thinking, oh, that's going to be the thing that really, no. The first time I did a RISE conference, I lost $42,000. And in case you are wondering, I didn't even make that much in a year. So I did not have that money to lose. It took me so much time to pay it off. Um, but I, I would get to a place where like we would break even or we make a little bit, but yeah, um, at least for me, cause I just love decor and I want it to be pretty and I want it to be a thing. So, um, they're not big revenue generators for me. So I wouldn't recommend that as a way to, to make more revenue. <laughs> I I love that you broke each of those pieces down. And again, you know, over deliver, right? I feel like you've done that even in this interview and adding in that extra context. And I think it's so important to realize that different strategies work for different reasons in different seasons. Okay. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but really it's true. I like that it did. (laughs) (laughs) It's easier to remember hopefully, but that's why I, I preach context. Like every single time I do any teaching, I'm like, context, 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 because it always matters. Like what is surrounding this decision? So like, for example, you mentioned events, so powerful for building relationships, but it's a very long-term play, right? Like you mentioned, you're not going to have an event. And then the next week be like, oh, this vastly boosted my income. If anything, it might have, you know, used up all of your marketing budget for that entire quarter, which is fine. But you have to understand this is the long-term play of that decision versus something like, you get a new email subscriber today, that instantaneous, you know, journey from email subscriber to customer can be a lot faster than it would be from event attendee to, you know, purchasing something, but it serves different reasons. So, um, I really, I really like that you broke down those three things. And I feel like this is a perfect segue into talking about your fall tour, because this is the first time that you've really done a live event for a while. I mean, I I spoke at your Rise conference back in September of last year, and even that Mm -hmm. was very much scaled down from previous conferences because of COVID and, you know, all these things that were going on. So tell us like why this tour, why now, why, why a show versus your typical format of a conference? And even some of the cities that you're visiting, these are smaller markets. This is not your Dallas, New York, um, LA type of market. Why did you choose to go with these towns that maybe aren't frequented as much for this type of content? Yeah. Um, because they need it there more. I think, um, I hope that people who are listening to this, who are in, you know, Birmingham, Alabama or Wichita, Kansas, or, you know, some of our smaller markets won't be offended by me saying that. But, um, I, I just think that there is 
a real need. It's why I have done this work for as long as I have and why I continue to do this work and why I listen to the audience and try and show up in the way that she's asking. The piece of feedback that I've gotten over the last you know, five years of doing events is so many women want to go and they cannot afford it. They cannot take the time off work because conferences are, you know, three days. So maybe you've got three days at conference, two days of travel. They can't take that time off. They don't have childcare. They can't afford a ticket. It's just, they can't afford a hotel room. It's a whole thing. And so my answer to that was, well, could we come to her? You know, could we bring sort of the magic of a conference and the motivation and the inspiration and the tactics and the wisdom and all of that to smaller spaces and, Doing them in smaller spaces means that the price of admission to get into the room is 40 bucks or 50 bucks. And at a conference, our least expensive ticket is 300. Um, so for me, this felt like an opportunity, not to say that 40 bucks isn't a lot, because there was a time in my life where that would have been everything, but that if you are looking for a community of like-minded people, um, you can find it here. And what I mean by that is, it's so beautiful. The audience is never the same woman. Like it's every age, it's every background, it's every belief system. It's every, it's just this big, like salad bowl of people of all different kinds of life. But what they're looking for is other people who are also trying to make life better. So I really believe and all the work that I do is around this idea of a better life and what's so great is that it's a better life according to you. So mm. for someone in the audience, she might be, her goal is to be CEO of Fortune 500 company. And for someone else, she's like, I want to be the greatest stay-at-home mom in the world. And for someone else, it's like, she's a college student and she's trying to, you know, be the best friend, the best daughter, you know, find her path and her career. It doesn't matter what it is, it's just people who are goal-oriented, who are trying to make change and maybe don't have that support in their friends or in their partner. Maybe nobody else is kind of like them. I, I know everyone's heard that quote, that we are the combination of the five people we spend the most time with. And if you are dreaming of something bigger, if you're working towards something bigger, but every single person in your circle is still kind of stuck in high school or is still thinking the same way or doing the same stuff, at the very least, they don't support you. At the most, they might tease you, um, make fun of you, try and make you feel bad for wanting to change. Like we all have so much pressure around us. So to find a community where you can be yourself, where you can dream big and you can find tactics and support and guidance for that, I just, it's rare now. And I, you know, I wanted to say this too for a podcast of people who are business owners or dreaming of being a business owner or having a side hustle or whatever that is. I just don't think we can take lightly how much women are beat up for that. You know, we're not supposed to want more. We're not supposed to talk about money. We're not supposed to talk about revenue. It's like the amount of times, like the, the bigger that your business gets, the more ridicule you can face for like, oh, how dare you? Like there is such a culture of this idea that if you want to pursue more in your life or if you want to make more money, that it makes you bad or evil or wrong. And I have to tell you, I also have a community of women business owners, of CEOs, of people who are building careers and companies. And they're never trying to be a billionaire. Their dream is never to own a Ferrari. 
Their dream is that their kids can leave a bad school district and go to private school. Their dream is to take their family on vacation next summer. Their dream is to take care of their aging parents and pay off their mom's mortgage. The women in my community, I'm positive the women in yours, we are community-minded. We are thinking of brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles that we can lift up if we do better. But there is a culture of believing that it's wrong. So I feel like I just wanted to, to continue to have these conversations. And the best way I know of to do that is in an event. I don't know anything that's more powerful. Um, if you think of, for anyone listening who grew up in church, you know, going to church, you're, you're with people who are like-minded and it makes you feel a certain way. It gives you energy and life. If you think of going to a sporting event, a baseball game or a football game, when you're in the energy of a crowd, it just changes your physiology. And there's not enough opportunities for women to have that. So um, we do it on big scales with, with conferences. And this is our first experiment to try it as a tour. And um, honestly, I don't know if it's going to make uh, money. I really don't. I mean, like everyone, I have these like big people and big partners and they're like, but these are so small, like we really need. And I'm like, oh, just that's not why we're here. That's not why we're here. Anything that I try out, it's always an experiment. And I hope that I get to tell you like, oh my gosh, Ellen, this was massively successful and everyone showed up and it was so great that I am going to take it to bigger markets but I just felt called to serve a different community. And um, yeah, I really hope that it works. So it's motivation and inspiration. And it's this idea of reconnecting, reconnecting to ourself and our goals and our vision for our life and reconnecting to a community who can support that. I love that. And I very much resonate with this need for smaller markets to have the opportunities that bigger markets readily have available opportunities to connect with like-minded people, opportunity to learn from educators and mentors and thought leaders. It's very difficult because, I mean, I grew up in a small town in a college town, which already is more, I would say more privileged than towns that don't have like a university or some sort of access base where, you know, people from all over may be coming. But even so, like growing up in a small town in Oregon and now living in the capital of Oregon, we still like, we never, I feel like no business conferences really ever like big national ones. They don't happen here, right? Like we don't have like a South by Southwest that Austin has right. or whatever it may be. And so, um, you know, we created a women's co-working space this year and we started doing very, very small scale live events. Like our biggest one that we've ever done is happening next month or not next month, this month, what month are we in August? <laughs> and, and even for that one, like when I say big, it's like, maximum capacity, 80 people. So it's not even very big in the event scale, but I think we need to create those opportunities. Kind of, it goes full circle back to what we said at the beginning. If people aren't giving you that stage or that platform, like go out and create your own. Right. And I think same idea, like these women, there's so many brilliant minds and so much untapped potential and talent in places all over the world, all over the United States too. And these communities, they, they need those, those, points of contact and connection and education and mentorship, I think to really thrive. And so I'm very excited that you are intentionally going to smaller markets for this tour. And if people are interested in, you know, seeing if they live nearby, where can they go to see your tour dates? So you can go to rachtalklive.com, R-A-C-H, talk live, rachtalklive. Um, 
you know, I did, I just want to say one more thing because you brought this up and I feel Please. like your heart needs to hear maybe other people. Um, 80 is huge. Ellen It's huge. Like I could cry. My very first conference, 132 people and ha- it was a BOGO. We did buy one, get one because no one would buy tickets. So only half have been paid. Um, but I feel like there is a, it's just the, the world tells us weird things. 80 people is massive. I think that one of the greatest gifts that we can give ourselves as entrepreneurs and maybe as humans is to not have ego attached to the things that the world tells us we're supposed to have ego attached to. Because even looking at these markets, like some of the theaters are 1500 people and, you know, uh, we sold 500 tickets here or 700 tickets there. And it's really easily, it's really easy for my team who's used to seeing in the thousands or to be like, well, it's not, you know, it's not an arena and it's not, and I'm like, 80 people, it, it really is such a big deal because think of this, how many people listening to your podcast right now have ever had 80 people pay to hear them say anything? <laughs> yeah, That's massive. It's massive. We have this like um, people, I'm trying to think of like uh, the critics who are out there or the random people who sort of try and pull apart anyone who's doing anything. And it's like, man, whoever paid forget paying whoever just showed up to hear you speak like at least we're out here you know we talked about this the other day um the Brene Brown quoting Roosevelt like yeah you're daring greatly you're out here freaking trying and if one person shows up like that's amazing because if you're willing to have that kind of energy about one person I promise you it'll be 10 next time and then it'll be a hundred and then it'll be a thousand and if you can keep that and I, I've never lost that I remember and I will always remember what it felt like the first time that someone walked up to my table at a book signing I literally, it is in my heart of hearts, like that girl, I can see her face so clearly in my mind of that one girl walking up at a book signing to get my autograph in a book that I wrote, like that's never gone. And if I can stay attached to that woman, then I really believe that I will continue to be able to do this work. You will be continue to be able to do what you're supposed to do because we're not here for the numbers. And we're not here for what the public says. We're here to serve and be a leader. And that will then enable other women to do the same. That's such a beautiful reminder. And yes, 100%. I think I was thrilled like you, like you mentioned when even one person, the first person who bought a ticket, I was like, Oh my gosh, this event, it's happening. We're doing it. And you know, I, I think that I tell people the same thing all the time. Like when they get disappointed, I think virtually it's even easier to kind of get lost in that comparison game, right? Virtually people might be like, I posted something and my video, my reel got 50 views, like, dang it. Like, you know, that sucks. And I usually use that exact, um, example. I go, well, what if I told you like, Hey, tomorrow I'm going to put you in a room and 50 people came and showed up to hear you talk for 10 minutes. Because if you had a 10 minute video that 50 people watched, that's essentially the same thing. And they often like their eyes become wide and they're like, Oh my gosh, I'd be so nervous. Like that, that feels like a lot of people. And I'm like, exactly. Because it is a lot of people. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that we should never lose that. Like you said, 
no matter who it is that shows up, you, you can never lose that like personal connection that you have with that one person who's listening. Oftentimes when I record podcasts, I think about like one person listening and, and what, yes. what they might be doing in this moment. Are they, you know, are they on a walk? Are they at the gym? Are they washing dishes? Are they sitting in their office working on a project and this is playing in the background? Whatever that moment is, it feels so special that they would invite me or invite you into their lives for an hour and just hang out. So I totally get that. I love that reminder. I think that's such a beautiful note to end on. My final question for you that I ask all of my guests, and I'm curious what your answer is, what does being a CEO mean to you, Rachel? You know, to be honest, Ellen, um, being a CEO used to mean a lot more to me than it does currently. Um, you know, when I was starting as an entrepreneur and for years, um, I, I needed that title and I needed people to know that I was a founder and I had done these things and I was powerful and wise and all of it. And um, it just, it really doesn't mean much at all anymore. Um, I have a team of people that work with me and I, I absolutely have a business in the financial structure and the legal ways that you're supposed to have a business, but I really don't think of myself as a business anymore. And I don't think of me as like running a company Um and I, I so honor that for people because I used to be that person, but in the type of work that I do and the type of woman that I want to be, I want to care a lot less about labels. Um, cause I think that for me personally, labels, um, has, have made me kind of chase the wrong things. You know, I, I cared so much about being a success in business that there are times that I lost what it would be to be successful in my life. I would run myself ragged. I would put my health at risk. I wasn't the mom that I wanted to be or the friend or the daughter. Um, so for me, CEO is a really beautiful achievement that I work to get to. And then once I got to realize I didn't need it anymore. And I think that that's a part of my evolution. That's probably one of my favorite answers. I I mean, I know we didn't get a chance to touch on this in today's conversation, hopefully a future conversation. The idea of simplification and and evolution and admitting, you know, and recognizing past wrongs or mistakes that you're like, I'm not that person anymore, right? I think all of that is is so crucial to continuing to grow as a person. And uh, I wish we had way more time to talk about all of those things today, next, but yeah, next, next time, one. next time. Sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, I, I appreciate so much, you know, you sharing your heart with us today and being so transparent with the numbers, with the data, because that is what our show is all about. We're here to create financially transparent content that other people aren't willing to ask or talk about. Cause I think it's important that yeah. Transparency allows people to have a seat at the table. And if you guys are listening on my show, go check out the live tour dates. If you live anywhere nearby, I promise you it'll be a fun time. You will get to meet some important people in your life. You never know who that person sitting next to you at the conference, what who they could mean to you, right? Because I always think people go to a conference or they go to a tour thinking, oh, the person up on stage. But I really think the beauty and the power is in the person sitting next to you. You never know who that person's going to be. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, thanks, Ellen. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble.